Welcome to the Practical Employment Law Podcast, a podcast covering all aspects of American employment law. I'm your host, Mark Chumley. Twenty twenty is officially over and not a moment too soon. I'm not a fan of making predictions about the coming year because in my experience, most employment law predictions after an election are some form of guessing that the new administration will probably pursue labor and employment policies consistent with their party's platform. This is the Practical Employment Law Podcast, so let's be practical. I don't know who started it, but pretty much as long as I can remember, January is the month when you're supposed to check your smoke detectors and make sure they're functioning properly. Good advice. And it got me to thinking. Are there employment law equivalents to checking your smoke detectors? Things that you might not think about all the time, but could cause you real problems. I came up with five things to check, and I'll talk about them in this episode. Item number one, COVID-19 plans. I know what you're thinking. This is all we've talked about for the past year now. How could this be something we haven't thought enough about? Well, bear with me. Here's the issue. Many employers have their plans in place. Everything is humming along. When there's a positive test, the steps are followed. Everything goes according to plan. But it might be a good time to take stock of the plan. Is everything working as it should? Is there room for improvement? These are good questions to ask now because it looks like COVID will remain with us for quite some time. Also, the COVID world is changing with the vaccine and its increasing availability. In the last episode, I talked about the EEOC's new guidance on vaccines and employer policies. This is an issue that needs to be addressed as soon as possible by employers. Another issue for employers to address now is the expiration of the Families First Coronavirus Response Act leave at the end of 2020. Employers have the option to continue granting leave through March 31, 2021 on a voluntary basis. Is that right for your business? Now's the time to decide. Item number two is a review of your business's use of independent contractors. A lot of employers had to reduce their workforces in the past year. When business starts picking up, there's a temptation to bring people back and treat them as independent contractors rather than employees, at least initially. The first thing to keep in mind is that the determination of whether a worker is an employee or an independent contractor is not based on the preferences of the parties. It's determined by a legal test. Unfortunately, this fact is often news to a lot of business owners and managers. Even beyond this, the test for whether a worker is an employee or an independent contractor has been notoriously confusing and difficult to apply. The overarching theory is that the issue is one of control. The more a worker is under the control of the business, the more likely they are to be an employee rather than an independent contractor. The classic example of a true independent contractor is a plumber. You hire a plumber to fix a problem, but you don't control how he does it. You don't provide the tools, you have limited authority to set the schedule of the work, and the plumber may be working for multiple people at the same time. That's what a true independent contractor looks like. The various tests that have been created over the years in courts and legislatures have tried to capture the essence of what an independent contractor is, but often they've been confusing to apply, and in many cases they were created quite some time ago and have not aged well. Interestingly enough, the United States Department of Labor issued a new final rule on this subject just last week on January 7th. The new rule identifies two core factors that are most persuasive to the question of whether a worker is economically dependent on someone else's business, and therefore an employee, 
or is in business for himself or herself and therefore an independent contractor. And here are the two core factors. Number one, the nature and degree of control over the work. And this goes back to the issue I mentioned earlier about control. The more a worker is under the control of the business, the more likely the worker is an employee rather than an independent contractor. The second core factor is the worker's opportunity for profit or loss based on initiative or investment. And again, an employee doesn't have much opportunity for profit or loss. They're getting paid a set amount over a certain amount of time, whether it's an hourly rate or a salary. A true independent contractor, however, is running a business and may have the opportunity for profit or loss based on their initiative or investment in the business. So those are the two core factors. The rule also mentions three other factors that may serve as additional guideposts, particularly when the two core factors do not point to the same classification. So the additional three factors to consider are the amount of skill required for the work, and I would say that in this instance, a higher level of skill would imply independent contractor over employee. Uh, additional factor number two, the degree of permanence of the working relationship between the worker and the potential employer. And again, an employee-employer relationship would typically have a greater degree of permanence than a true independent contractor relationship. And then the final additional factor Number three, whether the work is part of an integrated unit of production. And that means whether the work that the employee or independent contractor is performing is part of what the employer or business typically does. For example, if they're making widgets, is the worker working on making the widgets or are they doing something else? Say, for instance, working on the plumbing or maybe on a computer issue. The more aligned the worker's duties are, with the overarching purpose of the business, the more likely they are an employee. The rule goes on to note that actual practice is more significant than what a contract says, and the rule includes six specific examples. I've linked the rule in the show notes if you'd like to have a look. The rule does not go into effect until March 8th of this year. Now, obviously, that will be after the new administration takes over, and it would not be surprising to see the effective date delayed or the rule withdrawn entirely. Also, the DOL rule does not override state rules that may be different, such as the California rule on independent contractors. So the takeaway here is that employers should review their use of independent contractors as we enter the new year, and should do so using existing standards for now. Stay tuned on whether the new rule goes into effect as scheduled, or if we end up with something different. The next item to consider as we start 2021 is overtime exemptions. This is something that employers often ignore until problems lead to litigation. It is really an area that should be periodically audited to ensure that positions are properly classified as exempt. This is especially important this year for a couple of reasons. First, most businesses have not escaped 2020 unscathed and reductions in force have been the norm. Along with them, there has been the necessary restructuring of management and reshuffling of job duties. This means that employees who were properly classified as exempt a year ago, say as executives, may no longer meet the requirements for the exemption. For example, that executive employee may no longer have two or more direct reports, or possibly their primary duty is no longer management because they've had to pick up a lot of non-exempt work formerly done by others. 
Some businesses may have cut compensation across the board as well, and may have taken certain employees below statutory minimums for an exemption. All of this is worth checking out. Also, if you are concerned about a serious problem, consider getting counsel involved in the analysis to bring it within the attorney-client privilege. A fourth thing for employers to consider as we begin the new year is pending litigation, specifically pending employment litigation. Maybe you have a case that's been languishing for a while now, like many cases due to the courts being partially closed at times throughout the last year. Or maybe you have some new claims that have been filed recently. A lot have arisen from all the reductions in force. This is a great time to consider whether you might want to settle those claims. I can already hear the protest. We didn't do anything wrong. Why should we settle? Well, everyone who's been involved in employment litigation knows that it's expensive, distracting, and uncertain. You can make a business case for settling most claims. Whether you do is up to you entirely. If you do want to consider it, January is one of the best times of the year. I have no empirical evidence to support this assertion, but a lot of anecdotal evidence. In my almost 25 years of employment litigation, January has always been a good month for settling cases. I suspect it has something to do with people overextending themselves over the holidays, or maybe looking to the future more than usual, but whatever the reason, past experience shows that this is the time to make a run at settlement and putting those cases behind you. Finally, item number five to consider as we start the new year. New laws that have gone into effect. Every year, you probably notice news stories about this or that law being passed, and some may impact your workplace. Usually when the reports come up, the laws are months away from going into effect, so often people just ignore them, thinking they'll come back to it when it's more urgent. But then they forget because everyone is busy, and before you know it, you're out of compliance. This is a good time to review the laws that might impact your workplace and ensure that there is nothing new out there that you need to respond to. There are actually quite a few new laws going into effect this year. Here's just a few examples. California has a whole host of new laws in effect for 2021. These include expansions of family medical leave eligibility, expansion of paid leave rights, and expansion of leave for victims of crimes. Massachusetts has a new paid family and medical leave law that provides up to 26 weeks of paid leave for various medical or family reasons. New York and Connecticut also have new laws addressing family and medical leave. But the biggest news out there may be for Ohio employers. On January 12th, the governor signed into law Ohio House Bill 352, which overhauls Ohio's employment discrimination laws. If I had to give it a one-sentence summary, I would say that it makes Ohio law much more consistent with federal law in the employment discrimination area. Here are the highlights. The new law changes the definition of employer to remove most supervisors and managers from having personal liability in discrimination lawsuits. This is a big change because previously managers could be held liable along with the company and were often sued in their individual capacity. This change brings Ohio in line with the majority of states and federal law. Now, there are a few exceptions to the new law, such as when the individual manager is the actual employer or when the manager engaged in retaliation, for example. Another big change is the elimination of direct civil actions without first filing a charge of discrimination with the Ohio Civil Rights Commission, or the OCRC. This was a big inconsistency with federal law, which requires that litigants exhaust their administrative remedies by filing an EEOC charge before a lawsuit. Prior to the new law, this was optional for Ohio discrimination claims. But now the law is consistent with federal law, 
and parties will first have to file charges of discrimination. The new discrimination law also changes the statute of limitations in Ohio for employment discrimination claims. It used to be six years, one of the longest in the entire country. The new law shortens it to two years, although the statute is told while, the, while a charge is pending, meaning the time that the charge is being handled by the OCRC or the EEOC does not count against the two years. There are some additional changes, but most involve technical legal matters, such as how age discrimination claims are brought, affirmative defenses and hostile work environment cases, and clarification of available damages. The new law goes into effect 90 days from when it was signed, or April 12th. This has been the Practical Employment Law Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please watch for future episodes wherever you get podcasts. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you would like to contact me about any aspect of the podcast, my email address is mchumley at kmklaw.com and my full contact information is in the show notes. This podcast was created for general informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice or a solicitation to provide legal services. Although we attempt to ensure that the podcast is complete, accurate, and up-to-date, we assume no responsibility for its completeness, accuracy, or timeliness. The information in this podcast is not intended to create, and listening to it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. Listeners should not act upon this information without seeking professional legal counsel.